Hello and welcome to the Armenian News Network Gurung Week in Review. This show was recorded on May 15, 2023. I'm Aspet Bedrosian and I'm here with Hovik Manucharyan and here are the major topics we'll touch on today. Last week saw anticipation for the Brussels summit that took place over this past weekend, but Azerbaijan also attacked three villages inside Armenia, killing one soldier. We'll discuss this and the summit. Then we'll take a look at the outcome of the Turkish presidential election, which took place just yesterday on May 14. To talk about these issues, we have with us Benjamin Boosian, who is the chairman of the Yerevan-based think tank Center for Political and Economic Strategic Studies. Hello and welcome, Benjamin. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Benjamin. Good evening. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Benjamin, this week uh, saw more fighting in Armenia, uh, resulting in six wounded and a death shortly before an unfaced Pashinyan attended the summit in Brussels with Aliyev and Charles Michel and, and apparently declared recognition of an Azerbaijan with 86.6 thousand square kilometers, which many analysts uh, say includes Artakh. Uh, and this is troubling us and everyone, but specifically former Foreign Minister Vartan Oskanyan reacted to this saying that Pashinyan's hand must be restrained right now. Uh, it will be too late tomorrow. Meanwhile, former Foreign Minister of Artsakh, David Babayan, angrily called the announcement out of Brussels as disgusting, putrid and a criminal act. So a lot to this digest this week, but let's begin with the violence that uh, happened uh, earlier. Days before the awaited meeting in Brussels, a two-day battle began in Gerarkunik. Uh, Sotk, Norabak, Verin Shorja were attacked using high-caliber weapons, including mortar and artillery. The Armenian side had four wounded on the first day and two wounded on the second day. Unfortunately, on day two, we also had a death. Uh, Pashinyan said that uh, Azerbaijan's attack is an attempt to nullify, and I'm quoting him, to nullify the progress that was recorded during the negotiations that took place in Washington on May 1 through 4. Never mind that, you know, he said that, you know, he still had 990 kilometers to go out of those 1,000 kilometers, but apparently um, that was sufficient progress to call out. Uh, he also indicated that his plans to go to Brussels had not changed. What was the cause of all this fighting? We always see escalations right before important meetings is this just another one of those? And why, you know, um, why would you do that? And why would Pashinyan still decide to go? Okay, regarding the escalation, uh, first of all, of course, this we cannot compare what happened on May 11, 12, 2023. For example, what happened on September 12, 13, 2022, near Jermuk. So, yes, this was an escalation, but definitely not in the same scale as the uh, September two-day war. Potentially, Azerbaijan would like to put pressure, maybe psychological pressure on Armenia. But also, let's not forget that one of the goals of Azerbaijan could be to continue to block the functioning of Sotk gold mine. Because this gold mine, as far as I know, has several thousand workers. And definitely, most of them are from Gerarkunik region. Maybe the leadership is from Yerevan or other cities, but absolute majority of workers are from Gerarkunik region. Gerarkunik is one of the poor regions in Armenia, and it's a bordering region. And the Sotk gold mine is not functioning for two or three weeks because of irregular or regular shots fired from Azerbaijani side. So probably Azerbaijan would like to take some additional hates or additional positions 
to continue to prevent the functioning of the Sodk coal mine, because if this few thousand people who live in the Garconic region, they will lose their jobs, and if uh, gold mine will continue not to function, at the end of the day, the company which owns the mine, this Russian Geopro mining, uh, the company cannot simply pay salaries for months and months. Right. This would mean that several thousand people who living in Kerarkunik region along Azerbaijan border, Armenia Azerbaijan border, they will lose their main source of income. And definitely this will trigger people to leave Kerarkunik, either they come to Yerevan or to other cities in Armenia or even to leave Armenia. So my understanding is that the key goal was to take maybe more territories or more heights uh, to be able to prevent uh, the coal mine functioning. Okay, yeah. uh, thanks to our army, maybe this was the first time starting from May 2021 when, when Azerbaijanis did not manage to take any new territories because unfortunately, starting May 2021, any Azerbaijani attack against Armenia, the result was additional lost territories. And now Azerbaijan controls around 200 square kilometers of Armenian territory in the Arkunik region, in Vyodor region and Sunnit region. Uh, this time, Azerbaijan is failed, so there was no additional territory under Azerbaijani control as a result of this uh, escalation. But my understanding is that the key goal is to create additional economic problems in the Arkunik region and trigger more people living in Arkunik, which is completely in line with Azerbaijani strategy to depopulate as much as possible the bordering regions of Armenia. Was there any intention to affect the negotiations as well? Potentially, if uh, Azerbaijan is to take more territories, it could be some psychological uh, effect on negotiations. But my understanding is that uh, when uh, Armenian and Azerbaijani foreign ministers with their teams negotiated four days in Washington, definitely there was a progress. Okay, we can argue it was one meter out of one kilometer or 100 meter out of one kilometer, but there was a progress. And definitely the leaders met in Brussels to fix that progress, even if not to continue the momentum or use the momentum to move further ahead, at least to fix uh, this achievements or this progress which the foreign ministers reached in Washington. And if you look to public remarks by President of the European Council, Charles Michel, the key here, except for this statement that, okay, they are very close to open railway connections via or to Nakhijewan, because this wording we heard also one year ago when uh, the meeting took place in Brussels on May 22, 2022. Then, again, there was a statement by Charles Michel telling that Armenia and Azerbaijan agreed about principles of modalities of functioning of these transport corridors. So the key for me in the public remarks made by Charles Michel on May 14, 2023, is these two numbers. 29,800 square kilometer and yeah. 86,600 square kilometer. Why it's important? Because, okay, many now argue, okay, but Pashinyan recognized territorial integrity of Azerbaijan within Almata Declaration back in October 2022 when he endorsed October 6th statement. And Almata Declaration means that also Karabakh 
was recognized as part of Azerbaijan. Many expert political and academic circles in Armenia, they were arguing that yes, Armenia, by endorsing Prague statement, recognized Azerbaijan territorial integrity within Almaty Declaration, but it had nothing to do with Nagorno-Karabakh because first, the Supreme Council of Armenia uh, ratified Almaty Declaration with reservations regarding Nagorno-Karabakh and the right to self-determination. And second, Nagorno-Karabakh Republic declared its independence on September 2nd, 1991. Then, independence referendum was organized on December 10, 1991, while Almaty Declaration was signed on December 21, 1991, which means that, again, recognition of Azerbaijani territorial integrity within Almaty Declaration does not mean that Armenia recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan. So there was a lot of such discussions, and also there were a lot of discussions in Azerbaijan that, look, this is another trick by Pashinyan, another trick by Armenian government. They signed a Prague declaration, but still they do not want to recognize Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan. By putting the numbers, like exact number, 86,600 square kilometer, it was a clear message that there could be no interpretation or misinterpretation or no room for maneuvering. The Armenian government says that, okay, guys, I have no hidden agenda to say that, okay, yes, Almaty Declaration, but it has nothing to do with Nagorno-Karabakh because on December 21st, 1991, Nagorno-Karabakh was not part of Soviet Azerbaijan. Armenian government sends a signal that, yes, I am recognizing Azerbaijani territorial integrity within Nagorno-Karabakh. That is why I believe the, the number of 86,600 square kilometers appeared. On that issue, do you believe that Pashinyan is also agreeing to the handover of the so-called enclaves in Armenia as part of that 29,800? He has previously, I guess, made statements about that. So it appears that Pashinyan, to me at least, it appears that Pashinyan is not only handing away Artsakh, uh, to the enemy, but is also handing away critical points of Armenian territory, which would control basically all of major communications going in and out of Armenia, north and south, essentially, especially. Is that is that a correct interpretation? Okay, it's very difficult to clearly state what does Armenian government think about enclaves issue, because here we see non-consistent policy. Like several months ago, there was many statements by Prime Minister, by Secretary of Security Council, that there are no enclaves because there are no legal basis according to which these territories were given to Soviet Azerbaijan. So there are no legal basis, so there are no enclaves. But then, I believe a few weeks ago, Pashinyan stated that yes, if Azerbaijan are ready to give back our enclaves, Artvashen and also some land areas of some few villages in yeah, Tavush, some grazing areas. Yes, uh, then Armenia is ready to return these enclaves back to Azerbaijan. I'm not sure why uh, there is this inconsistent and this contradicting statement that first there are no enclaves, there are no legal base, and second that okay, there are enclaves, and if Azerbaijan gives us, we will give them, but if Azerbaijan will not give us, we will not give them. Also, everyone understands that Artvashen, or even the part of areas in Bazashen, Parawakar, or other villages, uh, they have a hundred times less strategic significance for Armenia and Azerbaijan than, for example, Tigranashen, which is located on the highway 
which connects uh, Yerevan and Ararat region to Bayodros, Unit, Iran, and etc. And also on these uh, several uh, territories or areas in Tawush region, which are located on the primary highway which connects uh, Yerevan with Tawush region and then via Bagratash into Georgia. But again, if we take into account the latest statement of Prime Minister, potentially, yes, Armenia could agree to give back these enclaves to Azerbaijan if Azerbaijan agrees to give back to Armenia Artovashen entirely and also some areas of some villages in the Tawush region. Benjamin, do you think this enclave issue is the source of a discrepancy between Pashinyan's 29,800 and Aliyev's one-time 29,000 numbers? Whether he was just yes. rounding it or whether he thinks that there's 800 square kilometers of uh, give and take, what do you think that was all about? Okay, yes, and uh, I believe Aliyev mentioned this number 29,000 when he was in occupied Talish during Novus and when he made a speech to Azerbaijani nation regarding this Novus celebration. Yes, Aliyev told that if Armenians want to live peacefully in 29,000 kilometers. That's right. It's difficult to say this was something like a mistake or some strategic perception. Actually, currently there is no 29,800 square kilometers under Armenian control. Why? Because first, Artvashen is under Azerbaijani control, and I believe Artvashen is 45-50 square kilometer. Plus, beside Artvashen, approximately 200 square kilometer Azerbaijan occupied since May 2021. So, De facto, now the territory which is on the control of Republic of Armenia is not 29,800, but approximately 29,550, like mm-hmm. minus uh, 250 square kilometers. So the expectation by Pashinyan is that Aliyev is going to withdraw his troops from about, let's say, 250 square kilometers when uh, something is signed. yes, but uh, not before the signature of peace agreement, because during one of his latest interviews, Pashinyan said that we don't demand withdrawal of Azerbaijani troops from occupied Armenian territories before the signature of peace agreement. The troop withdrawal may happen also after the signature, but we simply demand to have some clear mechanisms in the peace agreement which will guarantee that Azerbaijani troops will uh, leave these territories. If you ask me personally, I don't understand why he would sign before, but... Yeah, frankly speaking, uh, from my perspective, I don't believe that in any case Azerbaijan is going to give any territories because it's not only the 200 square kilometer to say, okay, if uh, Armenia is ready to recognize Artsakh as a part of Azerbaijan without uh, status, without any status, and even Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Region territory was... 4,400 square kilometer. I'm not speaking about Nagorno-Karabakh Republic territory in September 2020. So uh, one may say, okay, if Armenia is ready to give Azerbaijan 4,400 square kilometer territory, then potentially Azerbaijan could say, okay, I will give you back 250 square kilometer territory because this is it seems like an excellent deal. But the problem is that this 250 square kilometer is not simply in territories or area. Mostly, they are very strategic heights, which allow Azerbaijan now to control, not physically control, but to have fire control on the strategic highways, which connects Vyodzor with Sunik, which uh, highways which passes through Gerakunik region. So theoretically, if someday there will be another Armenia-Azerbaijan war, even from these positions or from these occupied territories, Azerbaijan can shoot any car which drives from Vyodzor to Sunik. Then question may rise, 
why Azerbaijan will give these territories back without fight or without war. So I believe when uh, Michel said that, okay, actual uh, delimitation should take place through further negotiations, and we all know that the limitation and demarcation process is quite a complicated one. We didn't finish with Georgia our delimitation and demarcation. Uh, 20 years or more than 20 years process is underway and only 70% of borders delimitated the demarcation. So theoretically, yes, Armenia and Azerbaijan may say that, okay, we are recognizing each other's territorial integrity within these 86,600 and 29,800 square kilometers. Then Azerbaijan may say, okay, let's start the delimitation and demarcation negotiations. And this negotiation may take decades. And uh, during this decade, Azerbaijan definitely can control this 200 or 250 square kilometer of territory. Michel's announcement, as you said, that talked about the demarcation and delimitation, also said that the forces should be withdrawn on both sides. We heard something similar mentioned by Pashinian last year, this so-called mirror withdrawal idea. So my question is, Azerbaijanis are already in Armenia. What is the point? From which point are they going to withdraw to where? And is it a good idea? Because like by some estimates, like if, if it's a, I think Pashinian said like five kilometers or uh, I forget how much, but by some estimates, in, you know, Armenian forces would have to end up in the middle of, uh, I don't know, Vike, Yerevan. Uh, you know, when, when they withdraw. So is it really a good idea? Uh, on my part, I also have the same question. Is the mirror withdrawal from the line of contact or from the this 1991 border? Okay, in theory, what Pashinian is telling that there should be Theoretically, or in theory, withdrawal from this 1991 administrative borderline between Soviet Armenia and Soviet Azerbaijan. But again, I don't see why and how Azerbaijani forces are going to be first pushed back to this administrative line, and then another five kilometers from this administrative line. In theory, this may sound okay. Let's, if we accept the Almaty Declaration, if we accept that. Uh, Soviet Armenia, Soviet Azerbaijan administrative uh, border should become international borders between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And we, if we would like to uh, decrease the level of tensions, okay, let's withdraw our troops several kilometers from this administrative borderline. But again, Azerbaijan is not going to do that. I believe everybody understands that Azerbaijan will not do that, and no one is going to force Azerbaijan to do that. So this is like, a, for me, it's a discussion without any hope that this ever can be realized. So it's an academic discussion. Something like that. Okay. Because uh, Andrea Victorin also this. mentioned that Hopefully that uh, maybe Pashinyan uh, says such things, hoping that he will be perceived as a constructive player by the West. Then the Western government will say, okay, you are a good guy, you are a constructive guy, you are a fledg fledgling dem democracy, you were a good guy, you organized democratic uh, revolution, uh, while being uh, part of the autocratic Russian influence. And then somehow Western government will say, okay, because Armenia is very poor, Armenia was defeated, humiliated, but Armenia is a democracy, let's stop this non-stop humiliation of Armenia. But uh, for me, it's like a fairy tale. So by that same token, doesn't that mean that the talk about any, any peace treaty is also a fairy tale? Because... I thought that, that uh, the so-called peace treaty would imply withdrawal of forces beforehand, or is that not part of the... Or do you think that they might be signing something without actually any withdrawal of forces? 
And in general, also, how close do you think we are to any signature like that? Okay, uh, I believe definitely we are now closer than we were, for example, in January 2023. How much closer, I don't know, but also I don't believe that we are closer only one meter, and still there is a 999 meters. At the end of the day, this peace treaty can be a very short document uh, with recognizing territorial integrity, non-interference into each other businesses. I don't believe that Azerbaijan will allow any wording about Nagorno-Karabakh in peace treaty, so there will be no Nagorno-Karabakh in peace treaty. Uh, maybe there will be some wording that, okay, uh, side agrees that international delimitation and demarcation protest should be based on uh, Soviet Union last maps. And as far as I understand, the real uh, last maps, uh, they have been produced in 1975 or 1976. But again, then the process of the elimination demarcation may start, and Azerbaijan has all chances to postpone or extend this protest for decades. So I believe Armenia and Azerbaijan may sign peace treaty. I don't believe that there will be any withdrawal of Azerbaijani troops from occupied Armenian territory before the signature of peace treaty. I don't believe there, there will be any withdrawal of Azerbaijani troops from Armenian-occupied territories immediately after the signature of peace treaty. The delimitation and demarcation protests may start, but it could take decades. And in these decades, we will have, we theoretically may have another Armenian-Azerbaijan war. We are speaking about decades, and we see that how uh, quick the geopolitical situation is being changed in the world and also in our region. But yes, uh, some sort of general a treaty, peace treaty, or the treaty on restoration of bilateral relations based on some general terms. But the key term is that by this treaty, Armenia will recognize that Nagorno-Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan, and Armenia will recognize uh, that uh, there should be no autonomy or no status for Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, I don't believe that in the treaty there will be written that Armenia recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as a part of Azerbaijan, and Armenia recognizes that no Nagorno-Karabakh should have no status within Azerbaijan. But if there will be no word of Nagorno-Karabakh in the treaty, it automatically will, would mean that yes, uh, for Armenia's conflict is over. And if Armenia recognizes Azerbaijan territorial integrity within 86,600 uh, square kilometer, then definitely Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan. And if we don't demand even autonomy, within this peace agreement, and I don't believe that, again, there will be even word of Nagorno-Karabakh in this peace treaty. Then, uh, potentially, it means that, okay, how we are going to negotiate with Azerbaijan later on Nagorno-Karabakh? Azerbaijan will say, okay, guys, game is over, we have peace treaty, I'm not going to negotiate with Armenia about anything. And, uh, frankly speaking, even international community can tell to Armenia, okay, if you thought that there are still problems in, about Nagorno-Karabakh, you should at least have some line in this treaty that something remains unresolved about Nagorno-Karabakh. But if we have zero mention of Nagorno-Karabakh in the peace treaty, I don't believe that even international community, even those countries who are somehow interested to support Armenia, how they can force Azerbaijan to continue negotiation with Armenia about Nagorno-Karabakh conflict after signature of peace treaty, because signature of peace treaty means that there is no conflict. So for me, it's very strange to believe that Armenia and Azerbaijan will sign peace treaty, and then Armenia and Azerbaijan will continue negotiations on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. So another uh, interesting thing, uh, Benjamin, you in the past have been a proponent of uh, the EU observer mission. Uh, in fact, I believe you said that any amount of foreign observers, monitors, forces, whatever in Armenia would help avoid escalation from Azerbaijan. 
but the observers themselves, you know, were observed, uh, you know, going to the site of the fighting about uh, eight hours after the fact. And it seems whenever there has been an escalation, ever since the observers have arrived, they have not been there. They have not been at the site. They have not been present. Yeah, they have not been present. And in fact, Andrea Victorin said the observers have a right to refuse to go to certain sites. And it is the responsibility of the Armenian government to guarantee the security of the observers, blah, blah, blah. What's your overall evaluation of the EU observers since they have been deployed to Armenia? Have they you know, provided any benefit? Have your initial expectations been met by this observer uh, deployment? Regarding uh, initial expectations, I believe I mentioned in my several papers, interviews, and podcasts that the deployment of EU observers may very slightly, I believe I use the very wording very slightly, maybe like 1% or 2%, decrease the possibility of new Azerbaijani attacks. But again, the possibility was very slightly. What does it mean very slightly? It means that the possibility is quite low, that they will play a role of the deterrent. There was a very slight possibility and also very slight possibility that they could deter large-scale attacks, something like similar which happened in September 2022. Now, regarding what our observers mission is so first of all these observers have only one mission to observe and to report nothing else second according to a mutual agreement as far as i understand at least between eu and azerbaijan observers they are obliged few days ago to inform azerbaijan to inform azerbaijan few days ago about any actual monitoring activities, like if these monitors are going, or observers are going to monitor part of Armenia-Azerbaijan border near Jermuk, let's assume on May 31, they are obliged to inform Azerbaijan no later than May 25. Again, no later than May 25. Observers are obliged to inform Azerbaijan that Dear Azerbaijani authorities, today is May 25. Please be informed that we will observe border areas of Armenia-Azerbaijan near Jermuk on May 31 from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. And this is a procedure which is actually happening. So from this perspective, after receiving this information, uh, I believe Azerbaijan should be a complete crazy to tell it's troops, okay, guys, you know, European observers will be in Armenia-Azerbaijan border in Jermuk sec- section on May 31, 2023, from 1 to 4 p.m. Therefore, please, start shooting at 1 p.m. and finish your shooting at 4 p.m. Definitely no. Azerbaijanis will say, okay, guys, for this day, there will be monitoring near Jermuk and let's assume near Goris. For example, for these days, or at least for these three, four, five hours, when there will be monitoring, no shooting near Jermuk, no shooting near Goris. Please shoot near Kapan, please shoot near Ijevan. Because at that time, we know that there will be no European observers in Ijevan or in uh, Goris. So this is a procedure, maybe we can say that, okay, this is a very strange procedure, and what the hell, why 
uh, European observers are here, if they inform Azerbaijan approximately one week before the actual monitoring missions, thus creating complete opportunity for Azerbaijan not to shoot during that time on that section of border. Yes, uh, maybe this is right, but fact is fact that this is a mission of European observers. So they only have to observe and report. Second, they have to previously, they have to inform Azerbaijan about their further or future monitoring processes, state, time, section of border. Considering that the EU mission is completely inside Armenia, why do they have to coordinate with Azerbaijan? Okay, frankly speaking, I'm not in a position to answer this question. Is this a general EU policy? For example, there is a EU mission in Georgia starting from October 2008, approximately uh, 15 years. I'm not sure if they are informing the South Ossetian or Russian side about their monitoring activities along, as they are calling the administrative borderline between uh, uh, Georgian South Ossetia or Georgian Abkhazia. But at least in Armenia, the decision was reached that they should inform about any monitoring activities to Azerbaijani government. Maybe to avoid some misperception, miscalculation, or some in some incidents. And second, as I mentioned, even if somehow Azerbaijan was too crazy to start shooting at the time and at the section of border when these observers are there, after fixing that they are shooting, if situation becoming dangerous, observers are obliged. They should take their cars and drive back to Yeregnador or even to Yerevan. Yeah, or Nothing any more. direction opposite of the fighting. Yeah. So essentially, <laughs> yeah, as you anything. have essentially as you have explained, it renders the EU mission in Armenia useless from any perspective of observing, because you are going to be observing uh, a moment of peace. Yes, that is why when we're speaking about slightly deterrence. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Continue, please. Um, and I was going to say that a couple of days ago, and I can't remember exactly who was saying this, whether it was Pashinyan or Armen Grigorian, that the EU mission is fulfilling its purpose entirely, I think they said. Yeah, but also some days ago, the same Armen Grigorian, I believe, said that Armenian government hope or wants to apply to EU to significantly increase the number of monitors. Because at the end of the day, Armenia-Azerbaijan border is more than 1,000 kilometers while we have approximately 100 observers and uh, 30, 35 other technical staff like drivers, translators, or etc. Et and by the way, the, these 100 observers will be deployed in Armenia by the end of June. I mean, currently there are less than 100 ob observers, which means that even if there will be no this uh, idea or this agreement to inform Azerbaijan, less than 100 observers cannot 24-7 in a 24-7 regime monitor more than 1,000 kilometers. For doing this, uh, you need several thousand monitors, not 100, but several thousand European monitors. So when even me, in my papers or interviews, said that may they may slightly, very slightly decrease the possibility of large-scale Azerbaijani attacks, uh, here we are speaking about political costs or political deterrence. But also, we are speaking about a large-scale uh, attacks. Like, there is a perception that 
if European observers are here, it slightly decreases the chances that Azerbaijan will launch large-scale attack to open the Zangezur corridor by force, like to occupy part of Sunik or part of Vyodor uh, region. Not because these EU observers will start to shoot and prevent this attack, but simply because it will be something like a challenge to European Union. But fact is fact, and it's very clear, that regarding this uh, low or mid-scale escalation, uh, what happened in Teh on April 11, or what uh, happened in, in and around Sotk on May 11 and May 12, yes, Azerbaijan is able to shoot whenever it wants and wherever it wants. So uh, low and mid-level escalations, in this case, yes, EU observer mission has zero capacity to deter or to prevent low or mid-level escalation by Azerbaijan, or low and mid-level military attacks by Azerbaijan against Armenia. They have zero capacity to do that. So I can only conclude that the greatest value that the mission brings is for public relations by the government against uh, the people. Also, we may say that somehow this uh, observer mission at least put Armenia into agenda of EU because uh, this mission is obliged to prepare weekly reports. These are classified reports. I mean, these reports are uh, they are not being shared neither with Armenia nor with Azerbaijani governments. Mm-hmm. These weekly reports are sent to Brussels. But then from Brussels, they are distributed to the capitals of 27 member states. So at least in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of these 27 EU member states, at least once per week, uh, the document came, like report of EU observer mission in Armenia, and somehow Armenia is being circulated among this EU bureaucracy in Brussels, and also the Armenia, that there is some problem with Armenia, that there are Armenia-Azerbaijan conflicts, or there are some uh, violations of ceasefire by Azerbaijani side. This information is being circulated both in Brussels and in capitals of 27 member states. I, c- I can imagine the stack of papers on president of Hungary's uh, desk. On one side, there's these reports from the missions, and on the other side, there's this gas agreement with Azerbaijan, and so with Bulgaria, so with many other European nations that are okay, standing I can in line assure to you buy Azerbaijani these reports oil. are not going to be put on the desk of leaders. <laughs> maximum, yeah, they can be even, put on the desk even. of head of department at MFA, like head of department on Eastern Partnership, or if there is a special division on South Caucasus, this is a maximum level. But at least there will be some circulation. But regarding the gap, for example, I can assure you that now the number one EU country, which simply are very happy with Azerbaijan, is Bulgaria. Because now Azerbaijan is supplying more than 50% of natural gas to Bulgaria. So if you go to Sofia and if you enter to government cabinets, Azerbaijan is a hero, really. Okay, let's turn our attention towards Turkey. Yesterday was May 14, the big presidential election day in Turkey. There's a real potential for change in Turkey as the political opposition, mostly united behind CHP leader Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, has mounted a credible alternative to incumbent president AKP's Recep Erdogan after decades of his single-party rule by a strong executive. 
This election is also watched internationally because of Turkey's expansionist agenda under Erdogan and the warm personal relationship between Erdogan and Putin, which has translated to some benefits for Russia during the war on Ukraine, specifically in evading some Western sanctions. Some issues concerning the South Caucasus and Armenia have been mentioned in this campaign, though probably I wouldn't say they are anywhere near the top 10 issues. For instance, Kilish Darolu said that his vision for connecting Turkey with China does not include a corridor that would go through Sunik, Artsakh, and Azerbaijan. Instead, he talked about a corridor through Iran. Meanwhile, Erdogan's foreign minister, Çavuşoğlu, was very quick to respond to Kilish Darolu's campaign, saying there will be a Zankezur corridor. And Azerbaijan, which has seen great support from Turkey during Erdogan's rule, also spoke out. Foreign Minister Bayramov said, without Azerbaijan, there can't be a Turkish road. The Turkish world will be united through the Zankezur corridor. So today is May 15, and at the time of our recording this show, it appears that Erdogan has mustered 49.5% of the vote to Kilic Darolu's 44.9%. And as the winner needs to take over 50% of the vote, it's very likely that a runoff election will be scheduled on May 28, two weeks from yesterday, between the two leaders. Benjamin, outside of campaign announcements, how big of an impact on Turkey's foreign policy would Kilic Darolu's victory have been? It's a very challenging question, because from one point of view, Turkey is a more or less modern state with institutions, with foreign policy traditions. It is not in the case that one person can come and change very quickly the foreign policy by 180 degree, but also we have to accept that there were some significant divergences between Kozdorolo and Erdogan, especially regarding the relation with the West. It's not the case that Kozdorolo was ready to, again, bring back Turkey to the U.S. junior partner status when uh, Turks were doing whatever Washington told them. But definitely under Kozdorolo, Turkey uh, will improve its relation with the West, and there will be more competition, less cooperation with Russia. But frankly speaking, the results are surprising and not presidential, but parliamentary. Because almost all experts, they were sure that most probably we will have a runoff, that neither Kozorolu nor Erdogan uh, will be able to receive more than 50% of votes. But also, almost all experts, inside and outside Turkey, they were sure that even if at the end of the day Erdogan may keep the presidency through runoff, most probably he's going to lose parliament. But surprisingly, as a result of yesterday's parliamentary elections, Erdogan, with uh, alliance with his uh, nationalist party, MHP, they secured uh, 320 or 321 parliamentary seats from overall 600, which means that Erdogan also uh, secured the majority on parliament, or will mm-hmm. keep the majority in parliament. And of course, this is also a very significant boost for Erdogan ahead of runoff, because if Erdogan lost the parliament, then this will be the boost to Kalajdarov. But now, first, Erdogan received 49.5, while according to many sociological surveys, he could receive something like between 46 and 48. And uh, second, he won parliamentary elections, which was absolutely unaccepted. And third, the third candidate, the semi-Turkish, semi-Azerbaijani, Mr. Sinan 
Hogan, he surprisingly took more than 5% of votes. But his votes are mostly nationalistic votes. And in general, the nationalist voters in Turkey, they are closer to Erdogan than to Klesdorov, or they are closer to AKP than to JHP, which means that probably the majority of these votes will go to Erdogan. And Erdogan now needs only half percent, while Klesdorov needs uh, 5.5%. So taking all these, I believe if nothing extraordinary happens uh, between May 15 and May 28, Erdogan uh, will uh, quite easily, quite in quite calm way, also win the runoff on May 28, probably receiving something between 52 to 54, 55%. Benjamin, what difference would it make for Armenia, whether there's a Kilistarolu administration or a continuing Erdogan administration? And one more angle, is there a potential for any kind of domestic unrest in Turkey due to electoral outcome? Uh, and if there is, what should Armenia and probably everyone else anticipate or be prepared for? Regarding Armenia-Turkey relations, I believe that under Kılıçdaroğlu, probably Turkey may move forward to normalize Armenia-Turkey relations before Armenia-Azerbaijan agreement signed, because uh, Kılıçdaroğlu may think that Turkey needs to be stronger in South Caucasus. And by the way, both Erdogan and Kuzeroglu definitely they want to see strong Turkey in South Caucasus and they are interested to see weakened Russia in South Caucasus, both Erdogan and Kuzeroglu. But regarding Armenia-Turkey normalization process, Kuzeroglu may thought that, okay, let's normalize relations with Armenia. This definitely will weaken Russia's position in South Caucasus and this may uh, increase the possibilities of Armenia-Azerbaijan peace agreement. While Erdogan will continue his former position, no normalization, no breakthrough in Armenia-Turkey relations before a signature of Armenia-Azerbaijan agreement on pure Azerbaijani terms. Regarding post-electoral skirmishes or instability, I don't think it's possible because if Erdogan would be declared winner yesterday on May 14, this could trigger instability because many will say, okay, something is wrong here, maybe there were some irregularities, especially as Erdogan also won the parliament, uh, like against the backdrop of many sociological surveys. But now, Erdogan did the very right thing, because it's very difficult to argue that Erdogan is a dictator, because look, the sentence, dictator Erdogan couldn't win the presidential elections uh, during the first round, sounds a little bit strange, because we understand that if you are a dictator, you are winning. If uh, you are a dictator, probably you do not need second tour or you do not, do not need a runoff. So I believe Erdogan uh, did politically very right steps. Somehow he secured parliament. Second, he transformed everything into runoff to prevent any declaration that uh, first round were rigged. And now he has significant higher chances to won in runoff than Kozirov. All right. Let's wrap up our topics here. Uh, it's time for me to ask each of you if there's been something on your mind this past week that you would like to talk about. Benjamin, what's on your mind? What's on my mind? Frankly speaking, I'm uh, looking into this uh, significant increase of these artificial intelligence programs or language models or large language models like ChatGPT, then ChatGPT4, then uh, Google Bard, now Microsoft edits, on artificial intelligence. And I am wondering that 
at the end of the day, maybe several years ago, uh, your show will be like this way. Google Artificial Intelligence, Google Bard, uh, has a discussion about Armenian-Turkey relations with Artificial Intelligence, Chat GPT-10. <laughs> <laughs> and then see, let's see what they will speak about. Maybe the they discussion will be more interesting. <laughs> Um, so you're thinking uh, in a few years, Hovig and I will be replaced with a, a couple of AI units. No, frankly speaking, I think first of all, I will be replaced as an expert because hosts no, but maybe experts definitely because this artificial intelligence uh, can uh, give more precise and more uh, preferable answers than any expert. I, for one, welcome our uh, artificial overlords. <laughs> Hovig, what's on your mind? Um, just that in the announcement from Brussels, Michel also said that there will also be an exchange of POWs, but specifically he added the nuance that those who got lost, and there is this uh, big trepidation in my heart that the prisoners that will be returned from the Armenian side are the recent two Azerbaijani soldiers who basically, uh, I would say, sabotage units that entered Armenia. Uh, the trial for one of them has already finished and they have been given an 11-year or something like a hefty prison sentence. The other person who directly killed the security guard at Izangezur uh, Copper Molybdenum Combine, uh, I think their trial has not finished, but I worry that both of them uh, will be returned. And even if only one of them is returned, I think that both play the role in the killing. I think it would be set a, I mean, yet another bad precedent for Armenia to hand these uh, saboteurs over as much as I want uh, you know, Armenian prisoners to come back. All right, thank you. We're going to leave it there for today. Thank you, Benjamin, for joining us today. Thank you, Aspet. Thank you, Oleg. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Benjamin. That's our show this week. We hope you found it helpful. Please follow us on social media. We'll talk to you next week.